Hello, you are listening to Trauma Transformation Adoptee Podcast, a podcast by adoptees for adoptees. I'm your host, Shantae, and each week we'll take a sneak peek into the lives of adoptees from all over the world, and we'll hear their stories of the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with being adopted or children or foster care. Some of the stories will break your heart. Some of the stories will give you hope. But all of the stories will have a similar theme of overcoming adversity. Because here we like to say that we can transform trauma into triumph. The show's about to start. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Trauma Transformation Adoptee Podcast. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 3, and we're calling this one Turning Point. I'm your host, Shantae, and I can't be any more excited about you joining our podcast audience today. This is your first time here. We're just family, and we're here to listen and to know that we're not alone in our journey as adoptees and as former foster children. So without any more delay, I have someone very special lined up to share their story with us. She's a dear friend. She's someone who believes passionately in the importance of mother-daughter relationships. And she also is the author of a very good book. Everyone, welcome Sarah Easterly. Sarah, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Thank you for having me, Shantae. I'm so happy. And where are you currently at, Miss Sarah? I am in Seattle, Washington. Seattle. Is it raining? <laughs> it was raining earlier. It just stopped. <laughs> one of the first papers I had to write in one of my counseling classes was about depression and being related to the weather. And, and Seattle, of course, was the topic of my paper with the amount of rainfall that it received. So I'm always curious of if it's raining there or not. It, it rains a lot here. And um, for that reason, and maybe tied into the depression, I don't know, but we have a lot of writers. It's a, it's a very big literary community. It is. Well, awesome. Thank you again so much for joining us. I'm going to give you an opportunity to, you know, share your story with us. I'm really excited. So I'm just going to now open the floor up for you and let you begin to share whatever is on your heart. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's just an honor and I'm so excited by what you're doing. Yeah, I guess I will start by, you know, I, I think for me, it's hard for me to unpack adoption and my mother-daughter story and my faith story, because those are all things that are all tied up together mm -hmm. uh, so far in, you know, in my journey um, in this, this first chapter of my life. And as a young child, um, it all started for me when I was seven years old, and I encountered this beautiful yellow and black butterfly that I just started following all over my front yard and decided she was a friend and she was a she. It was uh, this lovely, innocent moment, and then a car came, started coming, and the car collided with my butterfly friend. And it was a really hard moment for me as a child. I, she, the butterfly did not die, I ran to the street to check on her and she was still alive, uh, suffering. And I 
basically became a hospice nurse. I sat with her, talking to her and crying, comforting her until she died. And I, looking back, I don't know if that was five minutes or 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I was, it was a time warp and, but it was, it felt like a long time. It felt like a very real connection. And I was pretty shattered. I was this carefree seven-year-old who'd never known any, anybody who died. But, um, and I didn't consciously understand what being adopted was all about, but I had lived it. I had lived that um, pain. I, you know, I was really sensitive to sensing and empathizing with anguish because I knew what that felt like. It was still in my body. Mm -hmm. So I was completely inconsolable for days and my mom was kind of flummoxed, didn't know how to console the, this inconsolable child over a butterfly. So she figured the best way was to do so through church and um, get us enrolled in church. And it, it definitely consoled her. She became, you know, back at, this was in the 80s, so the, you know, I know this, these words are still used today, but it was prevalently used, uh, a born-again Christian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, she dove in really big. She dove in with a Mothers of Preschoolers group and then hosting a Bible study, and it was a huge impact for her. Mm -hmm. And that kind of became a huge huge part of our family story, because I, and I heard it a lot, but what had happened is the story kind of got hijacked into her story of religious deliverance. Um, and it, and she gave this talk publicly. She, she started speaking at MOPS groups. Um, and she would tell everyone that it was because of me that she found God. Um, and, and so from her perspective, it's a lovely thing. And, but something just was not always sitting right for me as the adoptee. And I didn't have the words and the consciousness to be able to say that, but it just felt off. She also had facts off in the story. She didn't change them when I <laughs> tried to correct her. She presented my pain as something funny. You know, she didn't even remember the butterfly died. She, <laughs> she thought that the butterfly was a he and he flew off. So there were just a lot of just kind of factual issues that were problematic. <laughs> but the larger problem was that she was missing the trauma and not seeing me as a child and the why, what was underneath this huge affection um, that I felt and this deep sense of grief that was yes. starting to bubble up. And then it kind of, you know, because of that story, that's why it's hard for my, for my adoption. It's so tied up with my faith as well. And because I grew up hearing this and there was a part of me resisting because it didn't feel right you know, that I, I was used in this way and that it was, am I just purely a token for my mother's religious deliverance? Um, even though, like I said, I couldn't really get there. I just knew something was off and I had to put the arms, arms up and keep it a little bit at arm's length, even though I still identified as a Christian. Right. Um, I don't know if I necessarily, um, why well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't embracing it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I mean, I did go to church. I loved singing the songs. Um, I loved, you know, I loved the stories um, for a while as a child. And then when I hit adolescence, church became quite um, an agenda that my mom wore on her sleeve. And I found out later as an adult that it was 
we all of a sudden converted to the Lutheran church and I had to go through confirmation classes weekly. And so having not started in the Lutheran church and with the Lutheran um, people in my classes, I was always really shy and introverted. So that was hard. And as an adoptee, I think we, we tend to always feel like outsiders anyway. So it was just, you know, here I am another outside. It's reinforcing that outsider message again. What I found out later as an adult is that we switched to the Lutheran church because my mom thought that my birth, birth parents were Lutheran. And so she was trying to honor my birth mom, which would have made it, you know, we unfortunately, we didn't talk about adoption that much in my family. And so it was this taboo topic. And had I known that, had we been more open, that would have been really helpful. I, I would hope that I would have embraced church a little bit more knowing that and thinking, well, maybe, you know, this is like my mom, you know, kind of my birth mom and having that um, acknowledged, but I didn't. So, and I don't know, that's just my adult speculation. Maybe I would have had the same childhood um, resistance. I don't know. But either way, as an adoptee, um, a lot of what I picked up on from God was that God was angry and mm. mad at me and God didn't want me any more than my birth mother. I'm familiar with that that struggle. So I, I get that. I ran for a long time, for 20 years, because that was my inner core belief, is that God was angry and mad at me, and he didn't want me either. <sighs> Hard. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you said, I was running too. In my 20s, um, I got pregnant. You know, I think... It, I had that core belief that we were just talking about. And I also was trying desperately to disprove it. I was trying to be the good adoptee and win my mom's love and be this perfect child. And of course, because of the messaging in the church, I picked up on subtle messages that were never spoken and I don't think would ever still be spoken, but I picked up on this message that my birth mother, birth mother must have been a shameful person because she birthed me at such a young age and presumably was, you know, as they would say, out of wedlock or single. <laughs> yes, out of wedlock, <laughs> yes. yes. Um, was having premarital sex in order to do so. And so, you know, and then also, you know, my mom always used adoption as the counter to abortion. And so for me, um, I just felt there was no way I could risk telling my mom this mistake mm -hmm. that I had mm -hmm. made. So I got an abortion and I added that to the list of A, secrets that I kept from my mom and B, proof that I wasn't good enough for God. Yes. Mm -hmm. So here you were, you found yourself at 20 with something else that you couldn't discuss. Was there anyone that you confided in? Oh, that's a good question. I did have a couple of very close friends okay. uh, who I did confide in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And my boyfriend. So, um, but it always sought away at me that it wasn't my mom. You know, my mom was, you know, I've told you a story, one story, but, and she certainly was not a perfect mom, but as a mom, I now know none of us are. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Um, and there were a lot of things she did right. And in a moment like that, that's, you just want your mom. That was right. all I wanted, you know? And so it was a noticeable loss for me not to have my mom there and not to talk it through with her and not to, for us not to connect in that way and for her not to be there guiding me and helping me. And that was my doing. I, you know, I, some, I just wasn't brave enough. I didn't feel I would be loved. I, um, 
just, it was too risky. And I think as adoptees, I have come to realize another big thing. And that is, you know, we've already had one mother leave us in our minds, no matter the circumstances, that's how the child reads it. And so it's very, that relationship with your next mother is, it feels like life or death. It feels like you've got to be good because this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Did you, how old were you when you were adopted? I was only two days old. Okay. Me too. That is mm -hmm, me too. At what point did you find out that you were adopted? Have you always known? Is that something that you have been told from the beginning as far back as you can remember? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I, one, I don't know if I'm ever going to know for sure the answer to, because there's the being told, you know, um, as a child and then being able to grasp it. And I definitely remember when I was able to grasp it. I remember my mom sitting me down. I was probably uh, nine, I think, if I recall correctly, I was around nine. And that's when we had the talk. And it felt like the same kind of talk as the talk we had about Santa not being real. Um, that, you know, that same way, my family (laughs) didn't feel real. But as an adult, my mom said she talked about it a lot when I was young. And I know that, you know, we didn't talk about it a lot as a family, but that's a confusing thing to hear, to learn later, because it's like, "Mm, maybe, you know, maybe we had. And I think, you know, as a parent, I can even think of things, you know, just the equivalent of the sexual education conversations that I have with my girls. You know, I started that very young, like they all, they tell you to do in preschool years. And then maybe are there ways that I check off the box and assume I've got it done. And then you find out a few years later that, oh, their understanding has changed. Absolutely. Because our brains continue to reprocess things as we get older. So the way we understood life at five is going to be completely different for most of us by the time we're six or seven. Flash forward a little bit. I moved to Seattle later. Um, I met the man who is now my husband. We ended up having two children, two daughters, pretty much back to back. They're 15 months apart. Multiple things. Looking at my babies made me, and realizing how precious they were, made me kind of start to have to realize maybe I had some of that preciousness inside me too. Oh, that's good. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to believe it. And it ties in with the abortion as well, because Mm -hmm. I wanted, I kind of wanted to believe babies didn't matter. And I believed that. I believed I as a baby didn't matter. So how could I see value in another baby? That's Um, good. Mm -hmm. I'm writing that down. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I mean, but I I kept seeing it. My kids were precious. My babies were so precious in my arms. So it's kind of started to pull me, snap me kind of out of the fog and start to at least see my way through it. And also realize I wanted to be really intentional in my parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really important to me to get it right. And I think it goes back to, unfortunately, it was not always coming from the purest place. It was a lot of judgment of my, who I saw as my imperfect mother Mm -hmm. and um, wanting to be better. And, you know, this perfectionistic drive that I had all the time anyway, um, Mm -hmm. kind of really manifested in my parenting in those early years. I was reading books around the clock and studying child development um, and just really um, diving in 
wholeheartedly into parenting and mm -hmm. wanting to just nail it and make up for any losses I felt as a child. I didn't want my kids to feel that even though they weren't adopted. I was kind of projecting that I didn't want them to feel any separation. Right. Um, and I, I still believe that that's not, um, I haven't changed in that separation is huge for children, regardless of whether it's adoption or other separate, other kinds of separation. It's not the only separation for kids that they, that can hurt them. More grittiness to my story, because unfortunately I joined this parenting group. What I thought was a, joining a parenting group turned out to be a women's group that I later kind of came to see as a cult. Wow. So <laughs> that's a little bit more, more grit, a little more grit for the story. Um, and what happened is the woman who was leading this group was very charismatic and um, seemed old, older than I, older to me because I was putting her up on such a pedestal. Mm -hmm that I kind of decided she was possibly my birth mother. Ah, you had assigned her that role, huh? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. guilty, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, and I did it, I mean, I, I think because of the parenting, I finally was aware I had been doing it my whole life, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, mm -hmm. I, and it was women I admired, it, yes. whether, you know, for a while it was my aunt. I mm -hmm. thought there was some kind of story there. Um, I thought <laughs> Madonna and don't laugh, but I actually like briefly wondered about Oprah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think Oprah has been all of our moms at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she has that mother, <laughs> that mother love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, unfortunately, it was an unfortunate detour, but it did snap me out when I finally realized that, that I couldn't, you know, I was about to turn 40 and realized, mm -hmm. wow, I can't keep living in my head like this, mm -hmm. looking for fantasy mothers mm -hmm. everywhere. So up until that point, had you had any communication whatsoever with your birth mother? No, no. Okay. It was okay. a closed, it was a closed private adoption. It was in the seventies. And so, and it was, I, it was called a gray market adoption, which I never knew what that meant. Um, Explain that. Now I've heard of the black market, but I haven't heard of the gray market well and i don't do a good job explaining it because i don't fully understand it i i don't know i used to love the sound of it just because it sounded like it was kind of special absolutely yeah, yeah exactly special you're right yeah <laughs> adoptees are always told we're special so like <laughs> like a special exciting story right. <laughs> yeah like um, like the yeah. stork really did hand deliver you maybe right. maybe right I mean, I loved, I loved the story because I was brought in the middle of the night, um, rolling around on the back of a car of someone who brought me to my parents. So that was my impression of a gray market adoption. Um, oh, I think okay. it was technically legal. It was um, handled, it was done in, in Montana. And at the time, Montana was one of the last states to get a little bit more tight on the regulations around adoption. So I think it probably would have not have been considered legitimate in other states, but it was considered okay because Got of you. where it was. I guess that's my understanding. But. Interesting. So you've never had access to any information that's led you to your birth parents? No, until I finally woke up and realized I needed to tell my mom that I was going to search. I had signed up for a few of the registries, like you know, here and there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, just, yeah. And I was waiting for her to come and find me. I mean, right. I, everywhere I went, I was performing. I was trying to be best and biggest and, you know. Like, here I am. Here I'm I right am. here. Look how great yeah. I am. You 
you want me like yeah so yeah it never occurred to me I think to take matters into my own hands I think that's until I was 40 and um I wish it hadn't taken so long I wish I had and I think you know as I came to find out I I think my birth mother would have appreciated me doing that sooner, but that was my path. It just took a long time. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so I told my mom that I wanted to search and um, my mom in the meantime, and part of what um, was really hard about deciding to t- talk to my mom and make this decision was that um, she had had a double lung transplant a few years in, in this kind of time period between my having had my children um, and then deciding that I wanted to search. And so I really was afraid that this could be something that could kill my mom. I knew she didn't like talking about it. She tended to be fairly fragile when it came to adoption and sharing. She had a jealous side of her and um, I did not want to kill her. And um, it was really scary telling her. And she was, because of the lung transplant, she was on so many drugs to keep stay out of rejection. It was this crazy cocktail of drugs that um, it, it affected her emotions for sure. And I think it just only compounded the conversation between us, but it was an intense conversation and some kind of vicious things were said. She kind of outright, you know, that I told you about the butterfly story, but she outright for the first time said, well, you know, I think it would be good for your birth mother to find out. I mean, I know why you were brought to our family to make us all Christians, but your birth mother doesn't know that. And interesting. <laughs> I, you know, just a just felt used. And I think I, it kind of articulated that kind of subtle message I'd always gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, wasn't being masked any, anymore. It was just more indirect before. And I guess, you know, it was out on the table and she believed that. So um, anyway, though, my dad gave me some information and actually in hindsight, I just looked at this the other day. It was kind of funny because he sent me this, uh, this, sent me my papers with this ominous sticky note that said, if you're sure you want to open this door. And he was, they were worried about me too. It wasn't, <laughs> they're worried about my heart. They were worried about secondary rejection for me too. But I opened the, you know, the, the paperwork he sent, it was all blank. <laughs> Just, there's nothing filled out in any of the lines. So it did nothing. It, <laughs> it was, it's kind of comical now that I look back at it now thinking, what was that? And it was just a blank adoption, three page adoption paperwork with no signatures. With nothing. <laughs> So, and it was right when DNA, DNA stuff was taking off. And so okay. it wasn't, it was a little too soon um, to be affordable and realistic. And frankly, I don't, I don't think it would even help me now. Um, but we had to hire a detective and um, just grateful that we were able to do that. And some search angels were guiding me in different groups online and mm. I found my birth mother. So nice. that was, yeah. Yeah, that was good. And, and that's when I learned, and I had kind of learned this from my mom too, that she, it was a coerced adoption. OB who delivered me was in her words, um, the go-to guy for, or excuse me, it wasn't her words. It was my uncle's words because my uncle was friends with the OB, my adoptive uncle. And he said, she, this doctor was the go-to guy for all the unwed birth mothers. There's a really good uh, documentary that was filmed in the 70s, or I think. Um, have you seen that? It's, oh, it's called The Unwed Mother, actually. You can Google it. It's called The Unwed Mother. I have seen that. It's been several years, but I have seen that. Yes. Like, I mean, I think society thought they were, they really believed they weren't trying to be evil. Yeah. 
they really believed they were the whole unwed mother thing was such a huge cloud of shame following that and when we talk about adoption too and this is not to get off the subject but i think this is just something that we have to speak up on is that understanding that it is a triad that it not just the adopted family and, and not just the child but there's a birth mother involved in that triangle and and understanding the grief and the loss that they had to experience as well. We so often just cut them out of the picture and say, go on and live your life, you know, not recognizing that a lot of them are compounded with with grief and and depression from a loss that they can never really heal from because it's not loss like a death where you can have closure. It's a loss, but knowing that that child is still somewhere in this world and is that baby okay? Yeah. You know, so there is still, there's still a lot with that birth mother that I feel like goes unsaid even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they tend to internalize the shame too, and then not even talk about it. Like we tend to do as adoptees too. Yes. Um, You know, that same just kind of keeping quiet and keeping it all in. My birth mother had not, she mentioned it to her current um, husband once. And never brought it up again to anybody else. Never wow. So she had just lived with that her entire life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Painful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did reunion go? Is it what you expected it to be? Did you have any expectations walking into a reunion? You know, I was really naive. I had no expectations. Mm-hmm. I think I was so sure that I would be rejected, that I never allowed myself to even step into a kind of wondering and planning of what it would look like. Mm. I, um, I was surprised. Uh, (laughs) um, it's been, it was, it was wonderful. Um, I mean, like I said, I, I feel very lucky that I found out that I was wanted, um, that reframed everything for me, Mm -hmm. you know, there, that was terrific. Um, I, what, you know, things that I hadn't thought about is I found out I've got three half siblings. Wow. And they all have children because I waited later in life to have children. Um, two of two of my siblings have children right in the same age group as mine. And so I and I have a very close relationship with my adoptive sister. And so I had spent all this time honing in on my birth mother and never really thinking about anybody else, birth father or sibling. How big that circle could grow and how quickly it could right. grow. Right. right. Wow. So now you have sisters and you have nieces and nephews, I'm assuming. And Exactly. And then starting that Christmas, they start sending gifts to me. My birth grandmother, you know, writes me this lovely card. We're so glad it's a miracle. We found you, you know, and, and so it's this <sighs> wonderful, great feeling. And also like, whoa, I'm adoptee here. This is a lot happening. How do I buy gifts for you when I don't know any of you? And now, I mean, the shipping of <laughs> on a practical level, this sh- <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is not to complain, but you know, I've kind of was like, wow, that I just spent like how much on shipping presents to all <laughs> these people. And buy Absolutely. Absolutely. And do I know them? And you know, it's hard to make up for 40 lost years. It I- is. It is. And I think you brought up a valid point about not having any expectation. I think that the expectations are what really does the most harm when we're walking into those type of reunions. It's because if we're seeking to find that mother we've always wanted or dreamed of, so often we're disappointed. And, and we're disappointed because we set that expectation up 
ourselves. And so when you can walk into that situation, very similar to how you did, you know, whatever happens, happens from this, you know, you were not going in typically looking for a woman to be your mother. You were just going in to meet someone, the person that gave you life. And I know that just made it magnified, but you walked into that with this attitude, like, you know, whatever happens from this is what's meant to happen from this. I think I did. And I will say I was not without my disappointment and Mm -hmm. I feel terrible for this, but I think because of that fantasy that I um, had been told that my birth mother was 15, I really was looking for a 15, (laughs) 15 year old. Oh, wow. She wasn't. 15. She she was was 15. Yeah. Almost 18. But I found that out later. But my whole childhood fantasy was based upon her being 15. And I just decided super cool. And she was motherly. And, you know, when you're looking at Madonna, (laughs) someone like Madonna as a candidate for birth mother, and then finding a motherly mother that did rattle me for a while. Not at all disappointed now. But it was just that immediate, like, well, that fantasy was, I had somebody stuck in time. And there's so many emotions that we feel in the midst of those reunions. It's really hard to process it all right away. It really takes some time to be able to sort all of those things out that you feel. You're just bombarded. Can you recall what you felt the moment you saw her the first time? In person? The, mm-hmm. the, yeah. Oh, just, I, you know, this is probably going to not be the most inspiring answer, but I felt numb. It was, that's exactly, yeah, I felt numb too. And it was a few days later before I even started to feel anything at all in regards to that. Yeah. And there's no script of perform. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, what am I supposed to call you? Are you? Yeah. 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 There's no script. Where are you today? What is, what is going on with Sarah today? Well, I've come a long way. I I feel like I've come a long way. I'm sure I've got a lot farther to go, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, today I've, I've, um, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of, there's a little bit of story to get up to where I am today. And so I'll just share that um, shortly within a couple of a year and a half or two years, I just get the timing off. Um, I have to look at, look at a timeline, but it was within a pretty short, pretty quickly after my reunion that my mom went into rejection from her lung transplant, then eventually began to die. She, um, yeah, so it was very hard on me. It did feel like there was a connection. Did I kill, back to what I said earlier, did I, did I kill my mom? Did I do this? Am I responsible? That adoptee kind of taking responsibility and feeling. Yeah. Um, I flew home to be with her while she was dying. And um, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine said to me, you know, if you're on holy ground there, try to enjoy it. And um, just those words really did kind of key me in on something that this is sacred, what I'm doing, being here with my mom as she's dying. And so it, it definitely did feel holy. And my mom, I don't know if you've been around anyone when they've been dying, but it, um, it I don't, and I don't, I've, well, I've been with my, my niece as well. Um, it was holy and there was no question my mom was we were watching her going between two worlds, this one and the one where we go. And with my frame of reference, growing up in a Christian household, it to me was heaven. That it was to me, I was watching her in heaven. She was talking to 
other people, to ancestors, um, her, her poppy, her grandfather, there were conversations happening and then she'd be right back there in the present. Um, and it was ha going on for several days. And it wasn't all just rainbows and butterflies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was, there was a moment where it was really intense. And she said, um, why are they, I'm not lying. Why are they saying they're, why are they saying I'm lying? And it was really unsettling to be witness to this kind of thing happening. And, you know, I, you know, I said, who's saying you're lying? And, um, you know, I said, you know, we'll see you soon. You know, we're just trying to comfort her. We'll see you in heaven. And she said, I don't know. A part of me had because there were shady circumstances around my adoption because I had been lied to about facts of my adoption because my mom didn't believe me that my birth mother when my birth mother told me she'd been coerced she there were things that you know she didn't see me my mom didn't see me she didn't see my trauma she didn't see how it affected me she used my story there were there was a part of me getting a little bit of vengeful satisfaction mm -hmm. even though I don't want to believe in a venge vengeful God and a judgment day um, concept, there was a part of me in that moment thinking, well, if we're all accountable, she should be accountable for those things. Mm -hmm. um, but then as soon as she started saying she didn't know if she was going to heaven, I was kind of like, wait a minute, whoa, Hold on. <laughs> no, no, like that's, yeah, you yeah. can't have a loss of confidence. She'd always been so sure of her faith. She was so excited to meet Jesus that, you know, even though she was dying, she was excited. She was excited to meet her granddaughter, my sister's baby who had died. She it was just kind of this, how could she not, how could my mom of all people, you know, mm -hmm. I considered her the religious one, not me. How could she not be knowing if she's going to heaven? Mm -hmm. And I realized that was my only bridge to her. Even if my, my faith is lived and felt a different way from hers, I, mm -hmm. that we need that bridge. That bridge is our connection. And she had to, you know, I kind of decided she had to be allowed into heaven. So I prayed and not that I hadn't prayed before ever, but it felt like the first kind of a really deep, meaningful prayer that please, just please forgive her. I forgive her. She just, she was young. She was immature. She just wanted a baby so badly. And she's wow. a good person. You know, I was able to kind of in that prayer see that she couldn't have lived with herself if she if she actually knew that my adoption, you know, that she'd taken me from another mother, she right. had to believe in that divine story, that religious deliverance story. Because it was to, easier to, it was easier to chew, honestly. It, yeah. Yeah. So she had to think I came to the family for that reason. And, right. and uh, you know, and now that my faith has grown, it's like, I, I've come I to see that part of it. Yeah. I'm not, that's not my sole purpose. That's right. But maybe that was a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that was a, or that was a way that something that wasn't good was used, used for something that, that to be good. That's it. That's it. Because he takes what's meant for evil and can turn it around for our good. Wow. It's, it's amazing that your story started with this yellow and black butterfly, and then the loss of that butterfly. And we are now full circle to the loss of your mom. I think that everything that happened in between those two points in life has absolutely been the result of the person that is sitting in front of me 
right now. Like look at that little girl with a butterfly and then look at the woman that was sitting with her adopted mom when she passed. Look at that life journey right there. I think that there's a part in your book and we I want to get into your book a little bit that I just really feel like I need to share. While I'm pulling that up, let's talk about the name of your book and all that kind of good stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My book is called Searching for Mom and it's my debut memoir. It's about my mother longing as an adoptee. It's about, as I just told you, the premature death of my mom while trying to make sense of our complicated mother-daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. It's about my struggles with my faith as impacted by my adoption and some of the messaging around it. And it's about my battles with anxiety, perfectionism, some suicidal ideations, um, fear, um, and some of those gritty things that I talked about today. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, it's hopefully a story of hope. I, that's why I wrote it. <laughs> Absolutely. The um, section that I want to read from, it's out of the prodigal daughter, which is a, a chapter in the book and it's on page 201 is where it starts and it says only thanks to walking my own parenting journey and learning about attachment dynamics i had more consciousness around my reactions searching for my birth mother and finding out that i had been wanted had reframed my sense of self instead of acting unconsciously out of fear i could push aside the I'm not wanted or I'm not good enough narratives to make room for the other internal dialogue to calm my separation-based anxieties. When I read that, I d immediately just dropped the phone down and just realized how much of my immediate reactions in life, truly before I began a healing journey and became aware of what was going on, how many of my natural reactions in life were centered around the core beliefs of the two that you just named here that I'm not wanted and I'm not good enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I can completely relate. Yeah. 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 That's good. good. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I'm tempted to say there a little bit more, but I think I'll wait and it's in the book, but I had a really profound spiritual experience after some things that came out with my mom. And then I kind of felt in a totally different way that not only had my birth mother wanted me, but God wanted me to. Yes. And yes. um, I never believed that. And like I said, you know, I mean, I grew up in this family where everyone was very religious. And to me, it was always at an arm's length. And I think, you know, faith can be really hard for adoptees when we feel that unwanted because, and we also learn not to depend on other people. So depending on our mothers and depending on God, no. Right. Well, faith is based on trust. And if the people that are put here on this earth fail to do what they're supposed to do, we have an automatic breach of trust from the very beginning. Yeah. Bro we feel broken, unwanted, yeah. and all yeah. that. I, I yeah. can't trust parents that are tangible. How do I trust someone I can't see? Yeah. You know, so absolutely. And I have to say that was just... Um, such a rewarding part of writing a memoir because it does make you realize all, all the ways God was there that yeah. you may have missed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Like definitely you, your story is amazing. And I know that someone will have an opportunity to hear this and will know, you know what, I'm not alone and I'm going to be okay. If you so. could leave out with one thought 
for someone that may be where you were with the suicidal ideations, with, with the need to be perfect, where, what would you leave with them? You know, you're, you're not alone. You're not crazy. I think we tend to think it's all us and that something's really wrong with us. Yeah. You're not crazy. You're not alone. And, um, and you're loved. And we're, we deserve good things, good relationships of all kinds. Now, that is a great way to leave out. Again, the name of Sarah's book is called Searching for Mom, a memoir. And you can find more information about Sarah and her book on her website. It's sarahesterly.com. That's S-A-R-A-E-A-S-T-E-R-L-Y.com. This is the segment of the show that I like to call My Two Cents. And just like anyone else's two cents, you can take it or leave it. In the show today, we talked about Sarah's life almost in its entirety. From when she started the story at seven years old, when she was hurt beyond normal capacity behind the passing of a butterfly, and even while her mother was on her deathbed, her adopted mom, how she stood courageously and boldly through that process. So from that wailing little girl to that strong and courageous woman, somewhere there was a turning point. I'm reminded of a poem that I had to learn in high school, and it's a poem by Robert Frost, and it's called The Road Not Taken. If you haven't heard it, Google it. It's a really good poem, but it talks about life and how there are these paths that we that we take. And what made the difference in his life in this poem was the point he made a decision to take the road he hadn't traveled down. He said that two roads diverged from a yellow wood, and I being one traveler, took the path less traveled and that made all the difference. As adoptees, as former children or foster care, we are dealt an unfair hand. This isn't playing the victim. This isn't placing blame on anyone else. It's facts. But it's not about the hand that we're, we're dealt. It's about how we play that hand. And I'm gonna be honest, that hand played me for years. I felt like I would never win. But there came a turning point in my life when I was able to recognize what was in me. And that turning point has made all the difference. I pray for my fellow adoptees that you find that turning point in life. So despite what your small beginnings look like, don't despise small beginnings those small beginnings turn into great endings. If you have breath, you're still capable of a great ending. That's all I have today for my two cents. Take it or leave it. Well, my beautiful friends, we've made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around with us. This is the point in the show where I will always 
recommend seeking mental health assistance. There's a reason why in the Bible, our thoughts and our minds are referred to so often. And I believe that God knew that our biggest battles would be fought in our head. And as adoptees, that's what so many of us face. So please get mental health help. Please share, like, follow, comment, and if you would like to learn more, I have a website that's in development. You can still go take a look at it now. It's trauma-transformation.com or feel free to follow on social media at Trauma Transformation Adoptee. Please know from the bottom of my heart to yours that you are loved, valued, and enough. We'll see you next Tuesday. God bless.